Good morning, everybody, and welcome. Uh, my name is Nick Davis, and I'm a programme director at the Institute for Government, uh, the leading think tank working to make government more effective. Uh, on behalf of the Institute uh, and CTEC, who have very kindly partnered with us on this event, uh, thank you very much for joining us for this discussion on how Labour would deliver a justice system that works for everyone. Coronavirus has placed a huge strain on the criminal justice system, with policing made more challenging, a huge growth in the Crown Court backlog, uh, and prisons locked down and unable to deliver most rehabilitative services. Yet many of the problems predated the pandemic uh, and must also be addressed if the criminal justice system is to work for victims, offenders, staff and wider society. So how joined up are the government's policies for policing, courts, prisons and probation? What should the government be doing to ensure that victims receive timely justice? Can any lessons be learned from prison operating procedures during the pandemic? And how can government ensure that prisons and probation services reduce re-offending? And what kinds of interventions can successfully deter criminals from repeat offending? To discuss these issues and more, I'm delighted to be joined by this fantastic panel. Steve Reid, MP, Shadow Secretary of State for Justice. Uh, Maria Eagle, member of the Justice Select Committee and former Justice Minister under the last Labour government. Uh, Suki Binning, Executive Director of the Interventions Alliance. And Mark Fennells, Casey, now uh, Chair of the Bar Council. Uh, following opening remarks, I will ask some follow-up questions before taking questions from the audience. We will be live tweeting from the at IFG events account using the hashtag IFGLab22 and also hashtag Lab22. Uh, and I encourage you to tweet as well while you're listening. Uh, and a reminder to all that this event is on the record. Right, without further ado, I'm going to hand over to Steve Reid, Shadow Secretary of State for Justice. Thank you very much, Nick, and thanks, everybody, for coming to this session. I, I always like to start my contributions um, by asserting what I hope is a fact we'll all agree with, that criminal justice is a labour issue because it's about social justice. Uh, and if you look at the system and the disproportionality um, on both sides of the equation, on both offending and victims... Um, it is much more likely people from marginalised backgrounds uh, that are likely to be offenders and likely to be victims. So it is imperative that um, Labour understands that this is a Labour issue. Um, and that hasn't always been apparent um, in our past. I believe with uh, Keir Starmer, um, who has, of course, a very strong uh, legal background, criminal justice background himself, um, I hope it's now absolutely um, evident to the public that we take this issue uh, very, very seriously and it will be one of the top priorities of incoming Labour uh, Labour government. The system currently, the criminal justice system, appears to me to be absolutely broken um, from end to end. Prosecutions now are so low because of Tory cuts to police that significant forms of crime like burglary, uh, robbery, fraud, car crime have effectively been decriminalised. Uh, in many parts of the country, the police don't come if you, if you phone uh, for help after experiencing any of those. Perhaps even more seriously. Um, the same applies to serious sexual assault, uh, including rape. So in the courts, we have a 60,000 backlog. Uh, that's way higher than anything we've seen before. Uh, and as you were alluding to, Nick, it was already at record levels before the pandemic. Um, so the government can't simply blame, uh, blame that for the mess that we're in. Uh, the, the fault for that lies to the way that they had 
been closing courts, reducing the number of judges and allowing one in four criminal barristers to walk away from the profession because of the uh, parlous state that the entire system had, had, had been allowed to uh, get into. But let's focus on rape for a moment. Only one in a hundred reported rapes ever gets to court, which is shocking. Uh, many women, of course, it would predominantly be women who, have, um, who are survivors of rape, with statistics like that will be very wary about even reporting what's happened to them uh, if they believe the, uh, the likely chances of getting justice uh, against those heavily stacked odds um, are a significant deterrent. And that, that of itself is a cause, um, a cause for serious concern because in actuality, the figures may be far worse uh, than, than, than the reported statistics would show. So those 1% that ever make it to trial, the average wait time is now over 1,000 days uh, for the first time ever. That's long enough uh, for many cases to simply collapse before they ever get to court because um, in many cases a rape survivor lives in the same neighbourhood as her attacker uh, and for many women being forced to wait three years is too much to bear uh, with the risk of bumping into somebody so they will simply um, they will simply give up and if there were witnesses and there may have been um, in some cases three years is long enough for critical details to have been forgotten and therefore the likelihood of a conviction being secured significantly reducing. And just a few weeks ago, uh, a, a father came to me to talk about his daughter, and we uh, talked. He wanted us to talk to the Today program, and they they publicised the case. Um, some of you may have heard about it, but his 13-year-old daughter had been raped, had to wait two years uh, for the case to come to court, and four days before the trial was due to begin, she was told it's being delayed for another nine months. That is a significant proportion of her adolescence spent waiting for justice for a rape uh, that occurred when she was just, just past prepubescence. Uh, it's an absolutely shocking uh, state of affairs, and perhaps more shocking even than the statistics of that, the, the, the details of that particular case, is that is now the norm and not the exception in the criminal justice system under the Conservatives. That is the extent uh, to which the system uh, is now... Uh, broken. Now, there are things Labour must do uh, if we win the election, and some of those we've already um, alluded to. So Yvette Cooper has made an announcement that we would increase the number of police by 13,000 on top of the figure that we've, uh, we're up to now. It's still lower than the Conservatives inherited from Labour. This figure would take it above, and so we can bring back neighbourhood policing and the likelihood of more prosecutions taking place so that you don't get this sense that many, many forms of crime have been um, decriminalised. In terms of stopping the hemorrhaging of criminal barristers from uh, the profession, well, Bellamy is just the start. Uh, the Bellamy Review, um, as some of you may, may know, was commissioned by the Conservative government, uh, by now Lord Bellamy, who sits in the House of Lords as a Conservative peer, um, whose recommendations, he said, were merely the bare minimum required. The government stood up in the House of Commons and committed to um, meeting the funding uh, requirements in Bellamy. I stood up across the dispatch box from Dominic Raab and said Labour would support them on that, and then the government reneged, uh, failing to meet even that bare minimum uh, of, of funding, which has done so much to fuel distrust between the, um, the Criminal Bar Association um, and the government. And I think it's that breakdown of trust that has been one of the main causes of the strikes um, that we're now seeing. Um, in that sector, barristers feel that they simply have nowhere else uh, to go. So meeting Bellamy would be a, a, a starting point um, uh, for us. 
Um, I've already made an announcement in the press, and I'll be saying more about it in my speech in the, uh, uh, in the, main, in the main room uh, conference hall tomorrow about opening specialist rape courts across the country, so in all Crown courts. I think that's about 83, um, if my numbers are uh, about right, a specialist rape court in each of those so that we can prioritise um, rape cases in the same way that remand cases would be prioritised. Currently, it seems to me absolutely wrong that that particularly heinous form uh, of crime is not prioritised for, for listings uh, to get them through the system faster. And to make sure that happens, we would need to open more um, specialist rape courts. And we need to be looking inside the prisons as well, because if prisons are going to rehabilitate um, offenders, we cannot be in a situation where, under the Conservatives, a prisoner is more likely to leave prison addicted to drugs than when they first went in. Because leaving prison addicted to drugs, they're going to go out and try to fuel and feed their newly acquired habit, which means more offending rather than less offending. So the system has broken down end to end. So we, we, we will have things to say on, on all of those. But I think we need to look much more profoundly across the whole criminal um, justice system because it, it fundamentally isn't working um, for, for communities. And I think uh, what we should be doing is looking at other countries and parts of um, practice in this country where trauma-informed practice has been applied to tackling offending and reoffending. And what trauma-informed practice is, it's quite a jarring term if you don't um, already know what it, what it means, but it's actually a very common-sense thing um, uh, that, it, that it's representing. And that is, if you can understand the adverse experiences that some children experience from birth, I think we have about 40,000 children born in this country every year to parents who have severe mental health and drug or alcohol addictions and domestic abuse in the home, you can pretty much predict that that child born in those circumstances is going to have a bad life. They will not achieve educationally. They're unlikely to get employment or, 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 or decent em or secure employment if they ever get it. They're much more likely to become an offender late, later in life. If you can get support for the trauma that those experiences call, cause a, de a developing mind, the cognitive and emotional um, uh, trauma, damage, that those experiences cause. If you can start to tackle that, you can dramatically reduce the likelihood of offending in the first place, but in an adult who has ha experienced that trauma as a child but never had it treated, you can dramatically reduce the likelihood of them reoffending, um, even as a prisoner, on release. And as there are projects all around the, the planet that are exploring these approaches. But one, one I perhaps will draw to your attention is the Compassion in Prisons project that operates in some parts of the United States where their success in reducing reoffending is dramatic. And I think if we took our criminal justice system and looked at it from end to end, taking what we now know about neuroscience, cognitive development, adverse childhood experiences, all of that trauma-informed um, um, practice, you would probably end up with a very, very different looking system, both in terms of what happens to a low-level young offender before they enter the formal criminal justice system, as well as what happens in the courts and with sentencing, what happens in prisons, what happens in probation. And you would have to extend it beyond the simple boundaries of the criminal justice system, because I think if we're not also including, um, as part of that journey that an individual goes through, um, um, ch children's social services, um, early intervention and family support, mental health, 
housing, we don't bring all of that into the equation as, uh, as well, we're not going to be in the position we want to get to, which is we're able to reduce offending, reduce re-offending, and make this country and our communities safer for everybody, but turn children who grow up to be offenders instead to become happy, successful, productive citizens in a more stable, secure and safe society. Steve, thank you very much. Um, I'm next going to come to Muriel Eagle. Thanks. Well, I'm going to stand up because I can't see you if I don't stand up. You might be able to hear me better. You never know. Um, I, I just want... I, I agree with a lot of what Steve has just said about the current government's record. And what, one of the things that concerns me and also concerns um, those of us on the Justice Select Committee is these delays in justice. Because one thing that will stop victims of crime from having any confidence in the criminal justice system that will prevent ordinary members of the public who come across crime relatively rarely in their own lives having any confidence in the system is if you get big, big delays. So I think that the backlog, particularly in the Crown Courts, is certainly an issue that the Justice Select Committee has been very concerned about. Um, the government have been inclined to say that it's because of COVID, but the reality is that the backlog was rising long before COVID. It was rising because uh, half the courts had been closed in the austerity drive, uh, and also uh, a lot of judges' sitting days had been abandoned. So if you don't have any courts and you don't have enough judges, you're going to end up with a backlog. Now, the government has put some money in the current spending review into trying to get the backlog down, the post-COVID backlog down. But even if they succeed in their plan, which is by the end of, 2020, by the end of the financial year 2025, the backlog in the Crown Courts will still be higher than it was before the pandemic. So their ambition isn't even to go back to we were, where we were before the pandemic. And this has a really serious problem. Since been exacerbated by other stresses in the system, including the barristers, um, and the, the, the issue that there is about barristers' pay that has led to the strikes, that has led to an, a, a more increases in backlog because court cases can't go through. I mean, justice delayed is justice denied. You know, ask the Hillsborough families about that. Um, it, it, you, you either do it within a reasonable time or you are failing as a system. So there's no doubt about the fact that the system is failing now. And that has got to be Labour's first priority, has got to be able to deal with that. I mean, we've had so many justice ministers in the last six months. I don't only mean secretaries of state. I mean, the junior ministers keep changing every five minutes. Um, the... the some of the junior ministers have had responsibilities in the Home Office across departments, and then the new ones haven't. You know, I know as a former minister, if you work like crazy and you're good at it, it takes at least three months to get your head around a brief. If you're a bit slacker, it takes six months. These, these people aren't staying in office for six months. And then there's a new boss, and then they change, and then they, you know... It's a, an absolute mess. We certainly need a new government. The new government has to focus on putting right these appalling backlogs because while you have to wait for two or three years, not just if you're 13, that's a terrible story, but it's not the only one. I mean, any justice delayed is justice denied and it makes it much less likely that you'll be able to get a proper outcome as, as memories fade and as, 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 as cases get dropped. That's no way of dealing with it. Just take fraud 
as an example. Now, any constituency MP will tell you, you get constituents coming along who've been diddled out of their life savings. It's absolutely heartbreaking by some scam merchant on the phone, on the internet, knocking on doors. I mean, fraud's now the most common crime in England and Wales. It costs the economy £137 billion a year. Yes, £137 billion a year. You try and get the system to take it seriously. You report it to the police, they tell you to report it to Action Fraud. You report it to Action Fraud, which is a phone line, you never hear anything ever again. I have almost never, as a constituency MP, had anything back from Action Fraud. It's like delivering it into the nearest black hole. You may as well forget about it. And the police, of course, they've got a lot. I'm not attacking the police on this because there are some specialist areas of expertise that are needed to deal with fraud. The police have had their numbers decimated. They're going back up again. But they've now got into the habit of fraud not being something for them to deal with. So they don't deal with it. They're either because they don't have the specialism or because it's not on their list of priorities that they're going to get tested against by the inspectorates. And they've got so many other things that they need to do. The fact that this is now something that happens to millions of our fellow citizens with impunity, sometimes taking away their entire life savings, at the very best making them feel stupid, because anybody who gets scammed feels like it's their fault. I'm stupid. I let them, these, these scammers, it looks so obvious after. But these scammers are clever people, and you're not stupid. I spend half my time saying to my constituents who've been called, you're not stupid. These people are clever at doing what they do. We need to take this much more seriously. I asked one of the ministers who came along, with Damien Hines, he was security minister for about five and a half minutes, well, a couple of weeks, well, a couple of months. And I asked him what, the, what all this extra money in the spending review for going into, back into the police, how many of those extra 20,000 police they've promised were going to be dealing with fraud? And the answer was, a maximum of 350. This is the biggest crime in the country. The 135 million that they'd given to action fraud was about getting a new computer system so they can log the calls more effectively, I expect. There's so many of them. So this is not <coughs> a serious way of dealing with the most serious crime that's shooting up, and the pandemic made it worse. So until you're actually focused on solving crime and helping victims, you can't claim you've got a functioning criminal justice system, and that is where we are at. So I say more power to Steve in some of the work that he's trying to do. We've got to completely reprioritise the way in which the criminal justice system is working. It's always, when I was a minister in MOJ, and I was the prisons minister, I was the courts minister, I did lots of different bits of it, one of the most difficult things always was trying to get the cross-departmental working to make it effective. That was all abandoned on auster when austerity happened. So what happened with austerity? It was obvious we were going to lose the election, unfortunately, in 2010. <laughs> so we went away to campaign. All the permanent secretaries pulled in all their money back to their, their corporate HQs, put their arms around it. This was how you used to do the cross-departmental working. It's gone. And the new government was only interested in cutting. That cross-departmental working still isn't back, you know. It's a hard thing to do. The only way, in my experience, it ever works is to have budget sharing. 
That's all that works. I'm telling you now, Steve, that is all that works. You can have as many meetings as you like. If you don't make them share budgets, you won't get any cross-departmental working. So we've got to focus on that as well. I also think longer-standing victims, I mean, we're here in Liverpool, the Hillsborough families, those caught up in public disasters through no fault of their own, having to spend 33 years and counting to get some accountability. They haven't had accountability. People have been found to have unlawfully killed their loved ones, have, have not been punished for it. That is the reality. And it's not the only disaster where things have gone wrong. Grenfell, still unfolding. Same things happening to those families as happened to the Hillsborough families. That is why the Hillsborough law, uh, which is about a statutory duty of candour, it's about proper representation at inquests that become adversarial, it's about equality of arms for those families. It's also about my public advocate um, proposals. I've had a, 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 a bill, private member's bill, 10-minute rule bill, I've been banging my head against the brick wall of the government since 2014 on this. They keep telling me they're going to do it, they haven't done it, we we'll probably have to wait for Labour to do it. But this will help say to victims who get caught up in disasters, and we never know when it might happen to us. The Hillsborough family's kids went off to a football game. That's what they did. And 33 years later, they're still, their families are still being abused and blamed, their lo lost loved ones blamed for what happened. Um, it, it, we need to have a better way of handling that. That also helps with making sure that victims get feel like they've got a place in this system because if they don't, then we're never going to get justice. I'm going to leave it there because otherwise there'd be no time for anybody else. Thanks. Brilliant. Thank you. Um, I'm next going to come to Suki Binning, Executive Director of the Interventions Alliance. Um, the probation system in the last five to seven um, years has had significant um, structural changes. Um, so there's an argument to say you know, it's time for stabilising, not to do anything um, drastically different. However, there's a desperate need to address the issues that lead to offending, such as accommodation, substance misuse, mental health, um, and education training and uh, employment opportunities for people in the system. The services for women in the system is wholly inadequate at the moment, so we do need to uh, address those issues. So when I started my career in the 1990s, um, the prison population was around 44,000. And ever since that time, the, we are always looking to reduce the prison population. Today, it's 82. So there's something very wrong that something that we're trying to reduce has kind of um, doubled. The only way we are going to reduce the prison population and the cost uh, attached to that is to invest in our community provision. And, you know, and we need to invest in our community provision. We need to invest in those programmes, those interventions that will address the issues that lead to people's um, offending. So um, a couple of weeks ago, I was sitting down with a, a woman uh, that we work with who has very complex um, needs. She does present a risk to the community. And she said to me, Suki, why did it take me to go to prison to have my issues addressed and get the help. And she's absolutely right. Why does she have to go to prison to get the help that she needed? If we invest in our community provision, people wouldn't be there. Um, and I think that's a real um, issue that we need to address.
Brilliant. Thank you. And I'm now going to come to our final speaker, uh, Mark Fennell, KC from the Bar Council. Thank you, Nick. Can I just try and pick up some of the themes that Suki and Maria have just been speaking about? The backlog in crime, of course, predates COVID, and I'll talk a bit more about crime at the moment. But I'd also like you all to think about the fact that backlogs exist in all jurisdictions, and delay in justice in the family courts, for example, has a pernicious and damaging social effect uh, on our country. Now, there's legislation in place that in theory says a child who's um, should be told where he or she is going to live should get a result within 26 weeks. Those deadlines are not being met. Uh, and the Minister of Justice has recently confirmed to me that back in 2015, in 55% of cases, at least one of the parties dealing with children's children had a lawyer involved. By 2021, that was down to 35%. And why does that matter? It's not because it's lawyers' interests. It's because as a result of no lawyers being involved, cases are taking much longer. You're getting litigants in person who are arriving in the most painful, difficult, traumatic situation they often will have ever dealt with in their lives. They're not helped by any lawyer. And as a consequence, the poor judge is sitting there thinking, how do I deal often with these two warring parents and resolve this? So the judges are ordering more expert reports. They're making more adjournments for people to go off and try and come up with ideas about how they might cooperate. And that is just compounding the problem. And that delay is corrosive to the public interest. It hurts every member of the public who comes into contact with the system. Many of you will have had your own contact with public services where delay is involved. You know how painful that delay that can be, that uncertainty as to when the problem is going to be addressed. It might be as simple as waiting at the moment for the probate office to answer what's happened to somebody's will. You know, and it might be trying to get a new driving license because nobody's returned to look at the documents you're sending in. You know, some of these things, as we come into contact with public services as a member of the publics, just eat away at us, don't they? And they damage the quality of our lives. But I've strayed a bit from criminal justice, having wanted to make sure that we never entirely have criminal justice sucking the oxygen out of the room about justice generally. And it is perfectly true that the backlog existed before the pandemic. The way that Crown Courts are managed is through a concept called sitting days. It's a kind of currency. And a sitting day attracts various costs and values. It's the cost of putting people to prison, and it's the cost of probation, it's the cost of all sorts of things. That's how the Ministry of Justice thinks about its costs. Now, as a consequence of that, when a government, any government, wants to reduce costs, it says, I know, we'll turn the tap off a little bit. That's what we do. We just reduce the number of sitting days because that has cost-saving implications across the whole system. But that creates delay. It's a manipulation of the system which people do to try and say, oh my goodness, we can't spend any more money this year. And that's why it becomes a lightning rod in a sense, the way we all talk about delay. We want more sitting days because that's more capacity. It's rather like if you're talking about health, more GPs to have more appointments or more operation, more, more surgical operations available so that we can all um, have surgery done quicker. And those sitting days are the current way in which we look at justice and how it's organized. 
But actually, the problems are structural beyond that. I'd very, I've got all kinds of fond ideas as to how I'd like the civil servants to look again about how to calculate budgets. And I thought Maria's point, if I may say so, was extremely acute. Because within the criminal justice system, we have three principal ministries which have a role. You have the Home Office dealing with policing, broadly. You have the, Lord the Secretary of State for Justice, the Lord Chancellor, dealing with courts and prisons, broadly. And you've got the Attorney General's Office dealing with the Crown Prosecution Service. And that means you've got three different spending ministries with different budgets, all existing in their silos, attempting to tackle what is a long, complicated, multi-ministry problem to solve. And that is not easy to fix. But if anybody's serious about thinking about how to improve the criminal justice system for all of us, for all the people of our country, so that, you know, usually our wives and daughters are girlfriends who want to complain about sexual offences or are parents who've been, you know, or elderly relatives who've been defrauded in one way or another, or whatever it is, or the young men who are out who are hit in the street. Whatever, you know, the, whatever crime it is we want them to be able to complain about, we've got to think about how those three ministries interact. And criminal justice governance, how we manage that demand through the system, is not easy. What's happened for 20 years or so, or more, is that we've seen governments of both stripes, so much more recently, the other one, not all of you in this room here, say they're going to be tougher on crime. And that leads to escalation. It leads to the greater prison populations that Suki was talking about. And it's what everybody does, all politicians generally do, in order to try and secure votes. Because it's very popular, the idea of saying, we must send pe bad people to prison for longer. But think about the numbers that Suki gave you. Was the country really worse off when the prison population was that little bit smaller? It's a question worth asking. And so I think our politicians should be more honest about the consequences of their rhetoric about escalation and politicization of crime. Because that increase in prison population sucks all the money out of the rest of the justice system and it has all the terrible effects that Maria and Suki were talking about in terms of people coming out more addicted, or I think Steve was talking about more addicted than when they went in. They're not being trained to do anything. There's none of the rehabilitation or education within the prison service. There's none of those things being done. There's an analogy, in a sense, with the health service, isn't there? All those people we know sit in hospital not being able to move out into social care. And you're waiting till everything's got to its most extreme point before you're doing anything. Everybody deals with the urgent and what's important. And so I think we've got to really think very carefully about criminal justice management. We should be thinking about much shorter prison sentences. We should be thinking about far more progressive community disposals. We should be thinking about how many cases really should be in the Crown Court or should be staying down in the Magistrates Court. And just on the point of cross-ministry stuff, you would be astonished how the highest echelons of the police and the solicitors and the bar and the judiciary all share a common thought about what works and what doesn't. It's a jolly tune. <laughs> <laughs> and that common thought is we all know 
that frankly, early advice and early intervention always is better. Um, you've got in the ordinance Lubna Shuja, who's about to be the new president of the Law Society coming in. She and I and I talked to her predecessor, Stephanie, when we're giving evidence before Maria and others about the value of in early intervention by solicitors, who in a sense are suffering a problem just as great as any criminal barrister, if not greater. I don't want everybody to think this is all about barristers. This is about the whole system of lawyers across the justice system. But what the police would tell you is, we immensely value having grown-up solicitors who know what they're doing in the police station. It means that cases are diverted out of the system that should be diverted out. People are not spending time in custody they should not be spending in custody. And police officers can get back to their jobs preventing crime and being back on the streets far quicker. The police want expert solicitors to be able to turn up to the police station and actually give the kind of advice that helps manage cases through. It stops some going into the system, and it means that those do go into the system are more focused, they're tighter, we've all got a better chance of using scarce public resources. And goodness knows, whatever your political leanings are, we're in for a time of scarce public resources, aren't we? We've all got to be realistic about that. So to come back to the tiny immediate point about the current um, action going on in our Crown Courts, which is in a sense a lightning rod, I'm not going to talk about the detail of it at all, but the Bellamy Review, done by then Sir Christopher, um, he since was um, made member of the House of Lords in the summer, talked about whole system reform. And it's complicated. It's not just a matter of saying, well, somebody's got to have X more percent. It's actually about how do the different pieces work together? And how do we get beyond the usual silos in order to try and make sure we can manage the process through? And... Um, all I can reassure you about is putting aside politics and headlines and all those sorts of things. Um, you would be astonished to know how hard the judges and court staff and professionals are working to try and make the best of a very difficult situation. It's not often I get platforms like this, and they're not very popular people to applaud. But what the judiciary and the court staff did, with the help of the professions, in keeping the justice system wheels turning through the pandemic was fantastic. They are operating, we are operating, in a system where, you know, people say lots of nice things about having nice rooms to look after complainants and victims of crime when they come to court. But when you get there and the lift doesn't work and the roof leaks and the heating doesn't work and there's no hot water... I was in a case at one particular Crown Court from November which ran into the part, first part of this year where on our floor there was no hot water tap from November through to March. It still wasn't fixed by the time I came back. There are so many problems around public procurement, about inflexibility of spending. You know, it's, it's hard once people like me are allowed to start talking to stop us, but I think it's probably <laughs> about time. Thank you for your indulgence, Nick, and I'm sorry if I've gone on a little long. Uh, thank you, Mark. And actually, um, some of the points you made bring me on nicely to a question I wanted to put to Steve. So as Sue said, the prison population is currently at 82,000. Actually, the MOJ's own projections put it going above 95,000 due to the police uplift programme. And presumably, all other things being equal, an additional... 13,000 police officers could see it pushed up 
even further. So I just wondered, you know, if we're back here in 2029, five years in as Justice Secretary, <laughs> what would you consider, what should we judge you on? What would be a success for you? Is it a success for, for you as a Labour Justice Secretary if the prison population has gone up even higher, that people have seen justice done, that we've take, you've been tough on crime? Or would you want to see far more people, as Mark said, either given kind of community sentences or kind of dealt with earlier in the process? I, I mean, I think I'm not... I don't have a legal background, so you know I see I see myself in this role not as somebody who is here to defend the criminal justice system because I've never worked in it. Um, I, I'm here as a a member of society, a representative of electors of residents who experience the success or failure of the criminal justice system by how safe we feel um, and whether I have confidence as a potential victim, and of course I've been a victim of crime as, as, many, as many people have, have confidence that my interests were being looked out for by the system and my needs were central um, to, to how the system operated. So I would be looking for metrics like that. Do we have a more safe and secure society? Do people feel safer uh, living in their, in, in their communities? If you are the victim uh, of some kind of attack, not necessarily a violent sexual assault, but that, that is such a heinous one at the moment, and so many women do not feel safe uh, or, or secure in reporting uh, what has happened to them. Would you have confidence in the system if you were to go there? And I think that is how we should be measured. Now, the term, in terms of what that means for the size of the prison population and how the system is operating, um, I think that is secondary, uh, if, I'm, if I'm really honest. Uh, and what, I'd, what I want to do, the way that I was talking earlier on about reviewing the entire system end-to-end -end through the perspective of um, trauma-informed practice, effectively that's just an update of tough on the causes of crime, isn't it? I think that was the right balance, tough on crime, tough on the causes of crime. But we can update that now, because when Tony Blair first came up with that, that, with that phrase in 1993, um, trauma-informed practice... Um, neuroscience didn't exist. Nobody understood it. Uh, now we do far better. So you can kind of update that, that old slogan to be meaningful for today's world. And I would want to see a criminal justice system that focused on prevention of offending and then reoffending at every single stage. Courts and sentencing, pre-entry uh, into the criminal justice system, inside the prisons uh, as well. And I would look to create partnerships um, of support to prevent reoffending by prisoners leaving uh, incarceration, and I would—I mean, my, my instinct is we should be holding to account uh, and supporting uh, those professionals in the prison service to the in, through by the extent to which they are able to operate in partnership with other public services to reduce reoffending rates. Thank you, Maria. I wondered if I could come to you. We've spoken quite a lot about the how different responsibilities in the criminal justice system are split between different departments and organisations. Clearly, better cross-departmental working would be ideal. But, you know, those responsibilities haven't always been in the places they currently are. Do you think it makes sense, for example, to have responsibility for policing policy in a separate department to that which is dealing with the criminal courts, prisons and probation? I, th I think the reason the MOJ was set up when it was was to remove... Uh, prisons and courts from the operational policing side, partly because um, when they were together, uh, it, it almost there's no perfect machinery of government. 
There is no perfection in machinery of government. There's different ways of doing it. And, um, I mean, doing machinery of government changes, as any new prime minister finds out, sets you back in actually doing the job. Because you've then got to reorganise, oh, this lot have got to come into the department and those lot have got... And you have to have appointments. It, it, it slows you down in doing the job. There is an argument for keeping the machinery of government as it is and making it work better. If you get the sense that it just isn't working and will never work, then that's, that's the best argument for actually making machinery of government changes. But don't do it repeatedly. Try and do it once. Um, my experience as a minister, and I was a minister for nine years across many different departments, didn't work in the Home Office, I did work in the MOJ, but my experience was the only thing uh, that makes cross-departmental working effective is budget sharing. If you don't do budget sharing, forget it. Each department, even the, the three that, 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 that were mentioned as being the essential ones in the criminal justice system, they've all got totally different, totally different cultures. Mm. siloized upwards or the home office has a different culture to the attorney general's office which is just like a chambers has a different culture to the moj and never the twain shall well never any of them shall ever meet or understand each other uh, make them share their budgets the only thing that works and and make them share the the key performance indicators that they've got to produce as well as their budgets and that is the most effective way of doing it um, so I don't there's a perfect, perfect machinery government. In a way, I don't care what it is, as long as you um, make the, the working effective. I mean, I, I worked in many different departments. Not one of them had the same culture as the next one. Totally different in each one. And so don't expect that just because they're both departments of government, they're going to get on with each other. They speak in languages that they don't even understand one to the next. They all have one thing in common, that is, this is my budget and you're not having any of my money. <laughs> right? I'm responsible for this. And my, as a senior civil servant, the way in which I, I, I understand um, my value is have a big budget and lots of staff and you're not having any of it. So use your own budget. I, I exaggerate, but only slightly. Yeah. So I think the thing is, don't get caught up in machinery of government changes. Don't think that making a minister a joint minister in the Home Office and the MOJ is going to be effective. It won't be. It means you get twice as many red boxes. You know, one or two a day is enough. Believe me, I did it for nine <laughs> years. You don't need any more than that. Unless you're the um, Attorney General, which you get eight or nine. But the thing is, it's not worth thinking you can have these little fiddles that will fix it. It won't. It's, it's, it's budget sharing and it's making joint responsibility for outcomes. And being very clear about what your outcome, what the outcomes are that you want. But also, don't get, don't get KPI-itis, right? <laughs> Two or three... I spent half my time as a minister stopping civil servants developing zillions of performance outcomes. No, we want two or three that mean something, that matter, and then we'll deliver them. We don't want, after two years, to have 25 new key performance indicators. That's the other thing you've got to avoid. 
So I completely agree on that. And for those who are interested uh, in setting targets and performance management across government, I would recommend, obviously, the Institute's own work uh, <laughs> on that. Uh, and you can find that uh, online. I wanted to pick up a bit on your um, budget point and come to Suki, because we've talked a lot about kind of intervening early and kind of programmes of support to stop people reoffending. Clearly, quite a lot of those programmes are delivered by the voluntary sector and the private sector. And I wondered... Therefore, if you think that the kind of budgets to commission that type of work are currently sitting in the right place and whether the public sector more broadly is kind of funding the most effective programmes. There's an absolute kind of uh, need to look at the budget for um, interventions, but across the piece in terms of looking at it as a collaboration. Uh, I think what quite often we see that those decisions around uh, funding for interventions happens in, in silos and not in a kind of multidisciplinary um, approach. And then you still have the issue where people uh, are not talking to each other even at an intervention um, perspective. So I think uh, a mixed uh, economy is the right one because we can all kind of learn from each other. You know, probation aren't necessarily experts in substance misuse or, or mental health and uh, vice versa. So that mixed economy and sharing the kind of um, budget for um, interventions should be looked at more broadly. Thank you. And I'm going to come to the audience uh, just after one very quick question uh, to Mark. So you talked about rightly about the hard work that happened to make sure the kind of the wheels of justice continue turning and particularly in the magistrates a lot of that was kind of increased use of remote technology and I wondered therefore clearly that didn't work for it wasn't used for jury trials and it's been scaled back since but I wonder I would just I'd welcome your thoughts on like we're always looking for kind of options to make public services more effective and efficient. Can remote technology help with that in the courts? It does help already a lot. And the answer differs from jurisdiction to jurisdiction, area of law to area of law. So, for example, in employment tribunals, there are shortages of judges in different parts of the country. So quite often you can have a case, say, I mean, I plucked two names, you know, in the southeast where there are no judges, and you might find there are spare judges sitting in Newcastle or Liverpool. And so connecting in some kinds of cases where you've got people who want to use the system and can use it can be fantastically efficient and as a way to help that bring down backlogs. Um, some kinds of tribunals, actually, the people like using it. In the Social Security Tribunal, there are very seldom lawyers involved. I'm told that a lot of the litigants want to do it off their phone from home. You know, life is too complicated to travel a long way in order to go and have a fight over what matters to them. They just want to be heard by somebody. The Crown Court's a little bit different, but actually the practice direction the Lord Chief Justice put out in the summer is a sensible balance, and what we try and do is use remote wherever we can, where there are people who are informed, lawyers on both sides, who can tell courts, this is all under control, this is working, or this isn't working. It's dealing with the procedural stuff that leads up to um, uh, cases being heard. Where I think there's some really interesting, much better work to be done, potentially, is in the prison estate. Because I think, actually, connectivity to the prison estate could permit some very significant rebuilding and be used for education, family contact, and cases. And so there is all manner of ways. You know, you, with all of your families, will have seen through the pandemic, whether you were dealing with children, some of us, you know, whatever generations, how people were taught through the internet. 
and what YouTube does. You know, my feckless son the other day was, I find him working out how to fix his bicycle by looking at YouTube. You know, that's what people do nowadays. And there's a way in which if we modernize the prison estate with a sensible long-term 10-year plan, I know 10-year plans are not fancy and, and fashionable because it means that one government can't claim all the credit. But imagine if we had some sensible long-term planning that said this new prison here will have the connectivity so that preparing cases means that there's plenty of appointments to see their lawyer who can now see them at any time of the day and you've got enough staff to move them around the prison to make sure they can be there with all the bits of kit they need to be able to read the papers in their case. But for the rest of the day, they can be sitting there going to maths and English class, you know, with one fantastic teacher, heaven forbid, exercise class. You know, the amount of social stuff you could do with the right co connectivity to help the kind of rehabilitation work and make, make those sort of facilities work seemed to me to be... To, to merit some thought. Thank you. Okay, I'm going to come to questions from the audience. Excellent, lots of questions. Uh, could you please wait for the mic to come to you before you start speaking? Please say your name, where you're from. Please, please keep your questions short and ensure that they are, in fact, questions and not long statements. Uh, so I'm going to... Take three at a time. I am going to take three at a time. I'm going to go here, here, and then here to start with. And I'm going to do at least one more round. Thanks. So I'll be brief. Um, so I'm Chief Executive of Justice, which is a, a UK-wide uh, law reform charity. Um, I am also, though, um, uh, as of seven months ago, uh, an ex-senior civil servant at the MOJ, and I'm trying not to uh, be too defensive about what Maria has said. But I would say I think things have changed a bit, and I think that there is a, a, a bigger focus on outcomes uh, and shared outcomes across departments. And my question really is in relation to um, that shared budget um, point that I think you've made, and Steve, your point around... Uh, those links that go beyond uh, criminal just the criminal justice system uh, and really understanding the users better who of course don't just be a defendant aren't just a victim often the two are the same people uh, but they also will no Sorry, can we come to the be using other public services okay. so how do we ensure that the evidence that sits across these different government departments are shared and are um, can interact successfully between each other so that that shared budget point really works well. Thank you. Thank you. And then just to hear in front. Thank you very much. Um, and thank you to Mark for <laughs> giving me the brief name check. My name's Lubna Shuja. I'm the Vice President of the Law Society of England and Wales, uh, incoming president in a couple of weeks' time. A really interesting discussion. And um, thank you for pointing out that actually it's not just barristers that are affected. We have solicitors leaving uh, legal aid work in their absolute swathes um, and there are huge areas of the country where no legal aid is available at all um, and I think one of the issues that we've got is that until the public are affected and we've talked a little bit about crime but also in the civil courts until they get in a situation where they have a dispute they don't realize that they can't get legal aid they don't realize that it's going to take them years before they get a court hearing so my question because uh, I really feel that it's about getting the public on board. You know, there are so many members of the public that are not affected, don't have any interaction with the justice system at all. And I'd be interested, I think Steve touched on this very briefly in terms of criminal legal aid. How do we get the wider public to understand the crisis that's going on across the justice system? Because I really believe that if they realise that, um, you know, 
they could be impacted by it. We need them to understand how bad the situation is. Because Thank if you. we can change public opinion, we can change priorities. So I'd be interested to hear views on that. Thank you. Thank and then you. just to the lady over there, and can we please keep them as short questions? Yeah, hi, my name's Emily McCarran. I'm from the Legal Education Foundation. And I wanted to say thank you to Mark for drawing attention to the fact that there are huge delays across the whole of the justice system. Uh, because just as there are uh, delays, there's also a significant uh, justice data gap across the whole system. Uh, recent research by um, the Foundation Art Justice Lab found that the, there was a com complete lack of data being collected on the experience of victims, the, the impact on them and the kind of breakdowns in the system. Sorry, uh, could you bring it yeah, to a question, yeah, please? Yeah, sure. So I guess my question is for Steve, you know, how will Labor address the data gap across the justice system so that victims and other servers, users' uh, needs are met better? Great. Steve, I might come to you first. So one addressing the data gap, one on kind of sharing evidence, and one from kind of raising public awareness of the wider crisis in the justice system. Yeah, and how many minutes do I have? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm delighted you're here from justice, because we've been trying to, or hoping to set up a meeting very soon, actually, to talk about that, that, that wider review. And I think, as well as with the Law Society, I think there's a lot we should be doing together um, on, uh, on this. I mean, I, I've never worked in, in government because the whole period I've been an MP, the last 10 years we've been in opposition, alas. Um, and we're hoping that that will end uh, very soon. My, my experience of running public services was at local government level, where even in a council, you get the same silo uh, mentality on a smaller scale, obviously, at, at national government. But, but professionals seem to see their little prism uh, of the world as the only prism, and they don't connect outwardly. And part of it is, as Maria says, it's people are protective of their own sense of power and status and their budget and the number of people that they manage is connected to that. So people are protective of it. The, the way that I found um, got cut through that um, was it's kind of like shared budgets. It was a, there was a commissioning process that you, that, that you use. And we developed a commissioning process with a hideous jargonistic description. So forgive me for what I'm about to say. But um, outcomes focused and user-led commissioning uh, cut through the silos. So basically you forced pooled budgeting by working with users, uh, uh, I think we're talking about here, um, people who were affected by that service. Uh, they were engaged by the professionals to understand three things. First of all, what outcome are you actually wanting to achieve in your life? And very often that was not the same outcome that the public service thought it was best to deliver. So we were delivering the wrong thing, which is of itself an inefficiency in the, se in the system. Secondly, what intervention would be most likely to help you achieve that outcome? And very often, the service user, the citizen, will have a view of that outcome, that m of the intervention that may, be, uh, that may be different to the one that they uh, are used to receiving. Uh, and thirdly, who would you like to provide it if you don't trust your current provider or... What power do you need to be able to force or compel the, the service provider to do more of what you want and less of what they think you want? And those two things can be very differently. Doing that drives an amazing amount of efficiency into the system, but also gives the person on the receiving end of the service a greater sense of control and agency over how the, how, how the entire operation is working. And that builds and develops trust in the system, which is necessary for them to become um, a willing partner 
to the organisation that was providing the service. Now, I think that principle applies across all public services, including the justice system. Maybe the link to, to data there is it works far better if you have maximally open data because then service users or their representatives and advocates can access all of the granular data that shows them what's working and what isn't working, and then they, need, they know where to push to get change. Now, my experience of public service providers, um, most of them but not all, is that they're quite defensive about data because if they think they think if people get their hands on it, they'll find out where they're failing. Actually, that's the point. Because if you can find the failing, you can correct it. And if you don't find the failing, it continues. So I think a different commissioning uh, approach would start to allow us to find the answers to some of the problems that we're talking about in this session. Siki, I might just come to you next because picking up on that kind of data sharing point where the services are delivered by kind of independent providers and how you can fix that. It's absolutely a, a key issue in terms of being really transparent about the kind of um, impact of the interventions that organisations um, deliver. And what we have at, um, at the moment is that it's really disjointed in terms of uh, creating that evidence base. So either organisations or public um, uh, sector bodies are doing it in isolation, not across the piece, in terms of pooling that intelligence and that data and sharing that so we can ensure that we have the right um, programmes in, in place. So it's a, it's a gap um, and it needs to happen with all providers, not just the kind of statutory providers. Thank you. Mira, I'm going to come to you next. Oh, um, I, I, I just taking Lochner's point about the... Um, about the legal aid deserts and, and, and how do you persuade the public that, that it's the crisis that they perceive in the criminal justice system is actually broader. Um, it's very hard, I think, is the answer to that. Um, partly because people naturally aren't particularly focused if it doesn't affect them. Um, I, I mean, and so it's hard to grab their attention with something that hasn't affected them yet until it does at which case at which point they will be focused but they won't have been lobbying for more having the capacity to have a legal aid of you know the, the ending of the legal aid deserts for example um and i also think we're entering into a period that's very uh, we've, we've had austerity it's never gone away in this city you know i mean uh, the the government said when Boris Johnson came in, austerity was over. Well, it's, we're still having to find savings. The city council here is still having to find savings. So it's never ended. Um, the, what happened on Friday and the, the consequences that are over unfolding today, uh, it's only the first, the first working day after, after that appalling statement on Friday, it, it, you know, borrowing money to give to rich people, I'm paraphrasing, I'm, I'm being, I think it's fair, but I accept that the government wouldn't think that was fair. Borrowing money to do that, not to improve public services, means that going forward for at least an, uh, until the general election, there's going to be even more of a squeeze. Um, the, the, the Prime Minister has now said there's not going to be another spending review, having promised during her election to the Tory leadership that there was going to be another spending review. So that means all the public services have got to cope with whatever their current budget is at a time when inflation is in double figures just about and the pound is plummeting and so if you in, if you import anything you know it's going to be much more expensive so i mean the, the crisis in public service spending is uh, is 
has been turbocharged by what happened last week. Um, so unless we can get a general election quicker, you've got a couple more years of this. So it is very, very hard, because I think the public see crises all over the place. And it's only when they need a solicitor that they're going to realise there's a, a real problem. And I'd, I'd, I think solicitors have got to shout louder. It's the only way in which you can... You can uh, uh, yeah, <laughs> probably a good idea. Mark, brief final remarks from you. I'd like you all to remember that the, the law of England and Wales is probably the second most important asset this country has got around the world after the English language. It is probably the second most important tool of power. And as we all reconsider our place in the world and how we adjust to this economic catastrophe that we face and how we recalibrate having left the European Union, law and keeping it healthy here will help this country find its place in the world and to a better and healthier future. The world looks to us. I've lost track of the number of people who've written to the Bar Council Law Society from around the world who are coming to this country for the opening of the legal year next weekend. The world looks to us because of our traditions. And if we break those traditions here and we fail to nurture them, we will break the second most precious asset that we have. So I'd like all of our politicians to look up and remember that's what the value of having a legal system which is healthy, functioning, and fair means. It gives the public access to everything it deserves for social justice here, and it enables Britain, the United Kingdom, to look out to the world and use its second most potent tool. Thank you. I know we could all keep going for a lot, lot longer, but I'm very sorry. I'm going to have to bring it to a close there. I'd like to end by thanking our four panellists for a really fantastic discussion, uh, to CTEC for supporting the event, uh, and to all those who've attended today or listened back later. Uh, the Institute's next event will be addressing regional inequality using evidence to create inclusive growth, which is at 1 p.m. in meeting room 7 here. We also have a kind of full programme of other events today uh, and tomorrow, and do attend if you're free. And finally, just to say, do keep an eye out for our annual performance tracker report, which is our assessment of the performance of public services, which, as has been alluded to today, is not in a great position, and that will be out on the 1st of November, and that includes the police criminal courts and prisons. Uh, until then, thank you very much and goodbye. <laughs>